Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. That is our text this morning. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God, acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Father, we want to approach your throne of grace this morning, for you have called us to do so. And we want to approach your throne of grace knowing that in Jesus Christ, what we receive is grace and forgiveness. But Father, we want to be aware and reminded of your holiness. You are a holy God, Lord. And this morning we want to see you as such. And we want you to reveal to us your holiness. Reveal to us Jesus Christ this morning. I pray that you would help us see him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we continue this series in the book of Hebrews, we come to chapter 12, verse 29, and it should come of no surprise to you that we once again have come to another warning. I don't know if you guys remember, you guys remember that hip-hop artist back in the early 90s? Uh, What was his name? Uh, uh, MC Hammer. You know, every time he showed up, he said, what did he say? He said, it's hammer time, right? Well, I'm here. I showed up. We're preaching. It's warning time, okay? <laughs> now, if you're a guest, please excuse my humor. That was an inside joke. You see, there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews, and this is the fifth warning, and I have preached all of them. <laughs> but the warning itself... It's actually nothing to take lightly. So before we start looking at this text, I want us to look at the warning. And the warning, we find it in verse 25. 
So let's look at verse 25, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read the warning section. It says this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That is the warning to us this morning. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Well, in order for us to get a good grasp at this warning, to not refuse him who is speaking, we need to go back and take a look at what has been said so far. And so far, the author of the letter has instructed his audience in living a life of faith by employing the metaphor of a long-distance race. What he's told us so far is that following Christ involves enlisting in a lifelong spiritual faith marathon. And so he has walked us through what this lifelong spiritual faith marathon looks like. It looks like this. It looks like laying aside every hindrance and sin. It looks like running the race with endurance. It looks like fixing our eyes on Jesus. It looks like embracing our current trials as God's fatherly discipline for those in the race. It looks like persisting and pursuing others in in the race by strengthening weak brothers and sisters. It looks like pursuing peace and holiness. And it looks like not failing to obtain the grace of God by staying clear of bitterness in morality, and ungodliness. Man, that was a long list, right? But this list represents the spiritual athleticism that is needed to be cultivated in us in order for us to successfully run the race. And this is why God, through this Hebrew writer, has been encouraging us to stay the course. Because the course, my friends, is a hard one. And just like physical marathon runners need to be encouraged to keep running the race, we also need to be encouraged. Now, for physical runners, there are always people that are spectators. They're race fans, right? Maybe there's some family members or friends, but they're spectators watching people running, and they're always encouraging They're always telling you, come on, you can do it. You can run the race. But there is an experience that the spiritual runner undergoes that is virtually unknown to those involved in a mere physical race. I don't know about you, but I never witnessed a crowd of spectators calling unto those in a real marathon to stop running. Have you? Just to give you... A little illustration. A few years ago, I ran uh, the Jingle Down Main Street 5K run in Miami Lakes. Now, shamefully, it took me 39 minutes to finish the race. But not once do I remember hearing any voices calling me to stop. My heart wanted to stop. But all I heard was people cheering me on to the finish line. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our spiritual race were the same way? Encouraging voices all around us, calling us to keep running. But the reality of this spiritual runner is that there are many voices shouting at us. But they are not encouraging us to run. They are calling us to quit. And this is the experience of this early Hebrew church and all who have subsequently followed in its footsteps 
You see, as they followed Christ and attempted to put one foot in front of the other, they were hearing antagonistic voices all around them. You are on the wrong path. You are headed away from the law given to us by uh, um, Moses in the desert. You have left Jerusalem. You have left your heritage in Abraham and Moses. You have forsaken your nation and you have forsaken the blessing of God. You will not make it in Jesus Christ. That's what they're hearing. And like them, church, we, we are hearing voices also. Because there are voices all around us that are calling us to stop running. These voices were causing them to neglect Christ, to doubt Christ. Ultimately, these voices were cultivating fear instead of the spiritual athleticism that was supposed to be cultivated. It was cultivating fear in their hearts. Maybe some of these voices are talking to you in your faith race right now. Are you heeding the voices that are calling you for the hunger of your loneliness and your singleness to blind you from the companionship of your Savior? And you are tempted to fear letting go of those relationships that are hindering you in your faith race? Or perhaps these same voices are calling you, they're calling for your desires of physical pleasure to look greater than the need of holiness and godliness, and so you fear laying aside the sin that clings so closely? Or perhaps these voices are calling for the hardships in your personal life to cause you to become bitter towards God. And so you are tempted to be bitter because you lost your job, or because your spouse is not treating you right, or because your children are rebellious. And in fear of the hardships, there are that, that we are facing and those to come, we are tempted to stop running. Church, there's antagonistic voices all around us and in us, voices that are calling us to quit. But to quit would be to refuse him who is speaking. Remember the warning? So there's a driving question for us this morning. In the midst of many voices calling us to stop running and causing us to fear, what motivates us to not refuse the voice of Him who is speaking? And I believe that as we look at our text this morning, God, through His Word, will give us the motivating answer. And He does this by having us consider two things. Point number one, He wants us to consider the path we're on. And point number two, he wants us to consider the promise of he who speaks. So, point number one, the path. Let's look at that. Now, the first thing that these opposing voices cause us to fear is whether we are on the right path. And so the writer addresses this fear by contrasting where his people have come from with where they, are, they, they have come and where they're going. Look with me at verses 18 through 24. Let, let us read. It says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. 
into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. My friends, what we see in these verses is the contrast of two mountains. He's saying to these Jewish people who who understood fully the description of Mount Sinai and understood what Mount Sion would, would signify. He's saying to them, he's saying this, what are you fearing? You're not coming to Sinai. You're coming to Zion. You're not coming to the mountain of law that poured out fire and smoke and thunder. You're coming to the mountain of grace where all there is is celebration and acceptance and forgiveness. What do you have to be afraid of? You said, instead of fearing the voices of persecution and sin that are causing you to leave the path you're on, you should be afraid of not continuing in your race to Zion because the only place left to go is It's to Sinai. And it isn't going to be any nicer when you get there than when Moses and the people of Israel got there. So look with me at the beginning of verse 18. Once again, he says, For you have not come to. And then in verse 22, he says, But you have come to. What he's emphasizing on is that those who are in the race of faith are those who have not come to point A, but who have come to point B. In other words, there are only two paths. We are either on the path of Sinai or we are on the path of Zion. We are either on the place of blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest, or we are on the heavenly city of God. Now, you might be sitting here this morning, you might say, well, Jose, I'm, I'm in neither. Because I'm not a Jew and I'm not a Christian. But what God would say to you through his text this morning is that whether you're a Catholic or a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Universalist or a Moralist or whatever you are, you find yourself in one of these paths because one day God is going to judge. He is going to judge everybody. Appointing to men once to die and after that judgment. God's going to raise everybody all to be judged. And there will be two standards for judgment. Those who come to God on the path of Sinai and those who come to God on the path of Zion. So let's look at the first path the author describes, and that is Mount Sinai. Verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched. Actually, in the Greek, he is saying, you did not come to the physical mountain. He's not saying that you can touch it. In fact, in verse 20, he tells us, he reminds us that nobody can touch the mountain, not even a beast. So he's not saying that the mount was able to be touched, but what he's saying was that the mount was a tangible mount. It was a physical mount. And he's saying, you aren't coming under the physical mount that burned with fire, nor darkness and gloom and tempest. So what is that a picture of? That is a picture of Mount Sinai. Let's refresh our minds a little bit and let's turn to Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. 
And this is what we find in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. We find this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and, to te- and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so God calls Moses onto the mountain and he says these words to him. And then further in verse 10, the Lord says to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And then we see in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and thick thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a cling. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And so this is what we see. We see the same description that we saw in Hebrews 12. But following all this, a few other things happen. And then Moses delivers the Ten Commandments to the people. And soon, as he is finished with that, on the heels of the last commandment, this is what Exodus 20 tells us. On verse 18, 19, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not, do not let God speak to us lest we die. My friend, this was a day unequaled in Jewish history. It was a day when God was demonstrating his holiness before men. And God was demonstrating his justice. And God was giving his law. And he was saying, this is my law. And the rugged heights of Sinai rocked with thunder and crackled with lightning. And the mountain was literally on fire. And God's presence descended on the mountain in fire and smoke. And accompanying it was a tremendous earthquake that shook the whole place. 
That's what we see at Mount Sinai. We do not see any indication of forgiveness there. We do not see any indication of any grace. There was no indication of any relief from the requirements of the law. There was no pardon mentioned. There was no promise of grace mentioned. There was just a whole display of condemnation and death. In fact, it was such a display of condemnation and death that when the hearers heard it, look what happened. Verse 19, and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. They were begging Moses, do not allow God to speak to us. You speak to us. My friends, Mount Sinai is a fearful place. In 2 Corinthians 3.7, Paul calls the Old Covenant the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. You see, God was at Mount Sinai. He was there in unbelievable outward demonstration of infinite holiness and justice and severity and terrible majesty on the one hand. And then there was man cowering and shaking and shivering in the lowest condition of sin and misery and guilt and death. That is Sinai. In fact, even when it was going on, even when God was giving the law to Moses, what were the people doing? They were worshiping a golden calf. You see, Sinai is condemnation. It is death and fear. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is laboring to communicate to us. He's saying, why should you fear holding on to Christ? You see, if you hold on to any other thing, look what you've got. You've got judgment and terror and vengeance and wrath. The kind that is unbearable. Look how unbearable it is. Verses 20 and 21. He says this, For they... For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Not even Moses, my friends, who had experienced the presence of God on the burning bush and on the top of the mountain, who had watched as God delivered his people with a strong and mighty hand out of the land of Egypt, who has seen God part the Red Sea, could stand unshaken at the sight of God's holiness and at the sound of God's law. My friend, the law of God from the time it was given at Sinai to the day in which it is preached today, it is always to do the same thing. It is to make the sinner shake in reality as he looks at judgment so he or she can run to Mount Zion to receive God's grace. We cannot preach grace and we cannot preach love and we cannot preach forgiveness unless there is judgment and justice and law and sin. If there's not that, then none of the other means anything. You can't preach forgiveness without having something to be forgiven about. And so we need to preach law. We can't ignore that God is the God of judgment and wrath. That God is a God of terrible, terrible vengeance against those who refuse Him. Every man who ever lived is going to wind up either at Sinai or at Sion. Take your choice. 
Listen, if you have ever come to Christ, you are stuck. If you have never come to Christ, you are stuck with Mount Sinai. No matter what you believe in, you will be judged on the basis of God's perfect law. And if you've ever broken it, even once, and I think all of us have, you will be damned. So what is the other option? Well, let's look at verse 22 and let's consider Mount Zion. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we saw the one mountain, right? Now we are taking a look at the other mountain. And this one is actually named in the text, Mount Zion, which here stands for heaven, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It is a place. It is a real place. In fact, it was the place where David placed the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and where one could come and find forgiveness through the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat. But also, it is a place that we have not yet seen and which lies somewhere in the future for all of God's people to see. This is the city that the Hall of Faith chapter, chapter 11, described Abraham as looking forward to by faith, a city with no foundations whose designer and builder is God. It is a spiritual place, not one that can be touched or tangible like Sinai. So what is he saying here? I think what he's saying is that when we are in Christ, we have come to a spiritual Zion, a place of grace. God is a pro-